Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai, welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, what more should we do to prepare for Omicron? As countries introduce travel bans and the variant is confirmed in the UK, but is the new COVID mutation really as bad as it sounds? Then Finance Minister Grant Robertson on inflation, housing and the response to COVID-19. You've got a bushfire, you don't go around lighting new matches. It is all about the accumulation of risk. And as we prepare to launch into the traffic light system, a remote community in the South Island is determined to reject the new normal. Unvaccinated people are completely shut out from society. We have to create a new way of living. And We will have that story for you shortly, but first, there is one other story that probably deserves a mention this morning. Kia ora, good evening. We begin with a developing story. Former National Party leader Simon Bridges has been demoted by the current leader, Judith Collins. Allegation of serious misconduct. Carnage today, carnage last night. What's going on? You're right, what a mess. You've seen the press release. There's a few people involved with this and I'm not commenting. Do you want me to go down there? Yeah, or? let's go. Simon Bridges, how are you feeling? Good morning. What we saw yesterday was truly desperate stuff from Judith Collins. I think it shows actually that she'll go to any length to hold on to the leadership. Uh, and I'm handing over all my portfolios uh, this morning. I cannot and will not work with her. Are you disappointed to see what's going on within the National Party this morning? No further comment. It'd be fair to say I don't think anyone's very happy with, um, with how this has played out at all, but. Well, look, the biggest issue today is it's the hundredth day of a short, sharp lockdown in Auckland. Judith Collins has been rolled as National Party leader. He's coming in right now, so Shane Riti is coming in behind me. The caucus moved a motion for a vote of no confidence in the leader, and that motion was successful. But yes, this is not uh, our best day. I can remember talking about the fact I have two boys and uh, I wanted a girl and I engaged in some old wives' tales uh, about that. I was genuine in my, uh, in my clear statements to you and to others about not having an intention to stand uh, where things were at. That's changed. I'm going to consider it. Greatly relieved. It's a really hard job. And I've done everything I possibly could. And I just wish everyone well. Do you regret last month's statement? Never. So, with Judith Collins gone, a new National Party leader is set to be elected by caucus this Tuesday. Now, we have approached all the reported contenders and none of them would come on the show this morning. In fact, Q&A understands there is effectively a soft media ban in place to stop potential contenders from publicly campaigning. But of course behind closed doors, it's a different story. Simon Bridges wants the job, while Sir John Key has reportedly been offering his support to Christopher Luxon. One News political editor, Jessica Much Mackay, is with us live this morning from Parliament. Kia ora Jess, thanks for being with us. What has actually been happening over the weekend so far? 
Well, a whole lot of phone calls, to put it briefly, and perhaps a few barbecues over the weekend too. Um, the barbecues are catching up in political speak. And oh, how interesting it would be to be able to track the phone calls of who was ringing who over the weekend. Basically, what they're trying to do is to see if they can get the leader and the deputy in place before Tuesday so they don't have to have a whole lot of bloodletting on Tuesday. At this stage, what I'm hearing from those on the inside is that it's still pretty fluid and they haven't quite got there yet, which may mean that they'll try today to get those two names firmed in, but it's still a little bit up in the air. So from what you understand at the moment, is it Simon Bridges versus Christopher Luxon, or are there other potential contenders for that top leadership position? Those are the two big names that people are talking about, but when it comes to the deputy, there's a bit of jostling around for that as well. The names that we had on Friday and that have, that have stayed through are your Shane Retty, your number two, Nicola Willis, Chris Bishop and Mark Mitchell. So those names are all in the mix, trying to get that perfect combination of leader and deputy. And depending on who the deputy is may shape how some of those 33 MPs are feeling. But there, there are... The ones that are most likely are Christopher Luxon and Simon Bridges, and that really just comes down to the argument is do you give the guy who's only been in politics for a year a go for a fresh start, or do you buy him some time with Simon Bridges? What role has John Key been playing over the last couple of days? Well, look, I don't think there's any secret that Christopher Luxon and John Key are friends. When we asked Chris Luxon about that the other day, he said that John Key makes a mean Sunday roast and uh, bores him with the details of his helicopter pilot pilot's licence. So they're pretty tight in this. And, of course, John Key was a very successful Prime Minister for the National Party and is still a power player in this. So he's still in the mix with all these, with all these talks behind the scenes. What is the likelihood this actually goes to a vote within caucus on Tuesday then? Look, it's still up in the air at the moment. They haven't been able to land that at the moment. And I think there are some in the party who feel like it should be a proper vote, a proper contest. Mm. Um, probably more people feel like it would be much neater and tidier if they actually were able to anoint the two people over the weekend and then announce it uh, on Tuesday and come forward as a united party. Now, that would be the best thing for the party if they are able to do that. But I think it's going to need one or two people to concede, and I'm not quite sure if people are there yet. Yeah, see, this is going to be the big problem, isn't it? You've outlined some of those negatives for those leading candidates, Chris Luxon and Simon Bridges, but whoever is the leader of the National Party is going to have to try and unite the various different factions. How will they go about doing that? Well, look, I don't think it's rocket science when you're looking at that kind of stuff. You make sure that you have representatives high up on that list um, that represent the Conservative wing of the party, the Liberal wing, that represent both North and South, male and female, um, diversity in the party. Mm. So you try and bring those people up close. So, you know... If, for instance, Judith Collins, you would think that a smart leader would bring her into the mix and at the top there, try and hone some of her skills and experience that she has a vast amount of and really try and unite the party and keep some of those... Uh, 
I don't want to call her a troublemaker, but keep some of those people busy and in some high-profile roles. So I think that they will have a big job ahead, whoever the leader ends up being, to make sure that that number 10 keeps the whole party happy. Because at the end of the day, they can't keep talking about leader after leader after leader. Mm -hmm. If you bring in Simon Bridges, that is a real risk for the party. He's going to have to really change the direction of the party if he doesn't want to be talking about leadership for the next six months. Because, you know, we're in the middle of a global pandemic at the moment and there's nothing more off-putting than the National Party squabbling amongst mm. it themselves. All right. I, I appreciate it isn't decided yet, but from the way those conversations and negotiations have been going over the weekend and from your sources, Jess, who do you think at this stage is the most likely person to be the next leader of the National Party? There's probably two ways to answer that question. Um, the smart choice, I think, would be Christopher Luxon. That means you're not talking about leadership and he's got two years up into the, into the election. Some people may say, no, let's put Bridges in, let's mm. give him another crack and... <clears throat> Excuse me, and that will buy him some more time uh, for Christopher Luxon to get a, a few more runs under his under his belt before becoming leader. But at the moment, it's a little bit close to call. But I, I think the race is on, really. And I think if, if mm. it was an easy decision for the party, if it was clear, we would have heard it by heard about it by now. And there are still a, a few wranglings going on behind closed doors. Mm. So those phones will be ringing hot. Yeah. as per yesterday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, big few days ahead. Thank you so much, Jess. Good luck for the next few days. That is the One News political editor, Thanks, Jessica Much Mackay. One former national leader who is himself familiar with the challenges of managing caucus infighting has been watching the week's developments with interest. Former Prime Minister Jim Bolger is with us now live from the Kapiti host. Tēnā thank you for being with us. As a former national leader, Tēnā I, Jack. I, I wondered how, how has it been watching the National Party over the last 18 months? Disappointing, simply put. Uh, the electors gave their verdict at the last election. The National Party won the party vote in only one electorate. Only one electorate. So disappointing is a very gentle way of putting it. In your view, where did it go wrong for Judith Collins? Well, it's no use uh, wasting time on what went wrong there. Uh, what the National Party needs to be doing if they're ringing the phones around, as uh, Jessica said, is actually saying, what are we going to do different? What's our new vision? There's an interesting book out by a Harvard professor of recent times uh, talking about reimagining capitalism, and I think we need to do a lot of that across the world, not only in New Zealand. Clearly, the model that's being pursued across the world now is dividing societies. Some are getting obscenely rich and others are going to the food kitchens, and... That's a dangerous position for a society. I mean, that's, uh, as it was uh, Aristotle who said, that's the root cause of revolution. That was four centuries BC. So we've got to do a lot of hard thinking as a society, not only the National Party. So, so do you mean the National Party has to fundamentally change its policy direction? I think it has to fundamentally rethink how they will apply what is usually called capitalism. They have to include everybody. We're just, you were just talking a few moments back, Jack, on uh, the new virus and uh, the divisions that are occurring in New Zealand now between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. And we've seen the riots in various cities across the world. We've got to be very sensitive to the fact that we could easily divide society, even a New Zealand society. Mm. And we want a leader. 
in the opposition as well as in government. We want a leader that can bring people together, that can offer people hope. People thrive on hope, on the hope of a better tomorrow. So the new leader, I hope, will be able to articulate a different vision of tomorrow, a better one. And don't look backwards. No, no use looking backwards for answers. You've got to look forward. And what is, what is your view? The leader, the first question the aspirants should be asked, uh, those who want to be leader, is what is your view mm. of the society you want to create if you become the leader and eventually become the prime minister? Because you've got to remember, it's not just electing the leader of the national party. You're electing potentially a future prime minister. What is mm. the vision? What vision do they have? What new ideas do they have? Let's stop just rehashing the old ones. Let me ask then about the changes that you think the National Party should make moving forward. We're now into, what, four leaders of the opposition in four years. Do you think the National Caucus has given its previous leaders enough time in the role? I... Uh, well, I'm not inside the caucus, of course, but... It's always difficult to move from a successful leader to the next one. Mm. People underestimate the challenges of being leader. And the Labour Party were exactly the same uh, when Helen Clark left, you know, very successful leader of the Labour Party, the Labour government. And uh, now uh, they were struggling. They were struggling right up to the election to back. And uh, Andrew Little stepped aside and out of nowhere, uh, Jacinda Ardern stepped up. And, uh, you know, people were very surprised. So it really needs a person who has a vision that they can sell, that's inclusive, that understands the stresses and strains of a modern society. We, through history, societies have divided themselves on the grounds of history, ethnicity, religion, colour, mm -hmm. and uh, we shouldn't pretend that we are not ever going to be divided. And I think with the COVID and the vax versus non-vaccinated uh, parts of society, we've just got to be very careful about that. So do you, do you think that Christopher Luxon and Simon Bridges have the qualities that you think are necessary for the next leader? I'm sure the qualities are in the caucus. The caucus has to decide which of them can meet some of the challenges I've just talked about. Uh, I'm not going to nominate them. I'm mm. not in the caucus. I just think they have to look at presenting the national vision uh, much better than they did before the last election. That's reminded of that extraordinary statistic. They won the party vote in only one electorate. Mm. You can't get much lower than that. So anybody who thinks, well, we'll just go back to what we were doing and we'll be OK is dream world. And they certainly shouldn't be considered as leader. Party unity within National is clearly an issue. In your time, there were some very ambitious and combative characters, plenty of infighting in the National Caucus. How did you manage that? Well, you have to understand where it's all coming from and understand there'll always be some element of, uh, I guess, combativeness in terms of... People coming to politics normally have a fairly high ambition. That's, where the, that's why they get there. Uh, some of that ambition is justified, sometimes it's not. So having people wanting to move forward within a party caucus is nothing to be surprised about, in fact, to be welcomed, because that says people have ideas they want to put forward, articulate, promote, uh, and that's good. It's a matter of how you manage that. And clearly it hasn't been managed well, but 
never seems to be managed well in the immediate aftermath, as I said a moment ago, of a successful period in government. And, you know, John Key and Bill English were a very successful period in government. Mm. Uh, but there's another dynamic now which we should touch on. You have to have a leader that has the capacity to reach across the aisle to form a coalition. Because it's unlikely, and I know the Labour Party got a majority by themselves, but it's unlikely going forward that'll happen very often. Mm -hmm. So the leader has to have within themselves the capacity to work with others, even if they don't agree on everything, which is unlikely they will. It's just a matter of being, I guess, uh, willing to listen to another perspective and at times accepting it. Do you feel optimistic for the National Party? I think the next few days will answer that more correctly as to whether we're optimistic, see how they come out of this uh, uh, leadership uh, tangle they're in. Uh, there is no reason why they shouldn't be optimistic. There's no reason the Labour Party can't be defeated at the next election, two years away. I mean, they have had a pretty easy run through. Uh, as the pressure has come on, as the COVID hangs around, uh, mm. they obviously the public are losing confidence in their ability uh, to run the show. That's very obvious by every poll that's taken. So um, a strong National Party with a clear idea what they're going to do. They've got to do much more than just be critics. You want people to hold the government to account? Yes, absolutely. But they have to do much more than that. And for many, the much more is the difficult part. Mm. It's easy enough to get up and say, I disagree, I don't like that. And we hear that endlessly. What people want to know is, if you don't like that, what would you do instead? What is your alternative? What is your policy? How would you respond to these circumstances? And we need far more of that. And, Jack, if I might say it to you in the media, they want to ask more questions in that space. Don't just let people rant on what they're against. Ask them what they're in favour of, what policies they've put in place, what new ideas have they uh, developed? Because that's what New Zealand needs to go forward. Mm. John Key ha has been expressing his support, at least internally, for Christopher Luxon. We understand the pair are close. I just wondered, do you think that is appropriate for a former party leader during a leadership contest? I have no objection to it at all. That's entirely up to John. Uh, and he has every right to express his views, as I could on this programme, but I don't intend to, because uh, I'm just taking a slightly different path. I want to encourage whoever is the leader to think bigger than they've been thinking for the last little while. That's really my mm. uh, key message. And uh, my key message to the caucus would be make sure you select somebody who can, has a bigger view of where the party can be positioned, can rethink things. Let, let me get, let's get to a really big one. Everybody knows that measuring societal progress by gross domestic product, which... Um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had developed in the 1930s, was never going to be a measure of societal progress, it just measures cash transactions. And to use a classic example I've used many times, the extraordinary work that mothers do bringing up their families, the next generation, that doesn't count at all for GDP. That's irrelevant. Counts for nothing. Why don't we actually do the work to get a better measure? We're a country that gave women the vote first. Well, let's look at doing something else that's big and inclusive and addresses a real problem in the world, which is how do we measure societal progress? Mm. Now, the little Himalayan kingdom of Bhutan 
who started work in this place by a global happiness index. The UN's looking at it, others are looking at it. One of the uh, most articulate in this space, in fact, is the former national MP, Dr Marilyn Waring, who's written extensively in this space, but many mm. other academics have as well. Mm. And why don't we start to think outside the sort of rigid, I'm for it, I'm against it, just think some new thoughts for once mm. and address some of the issues that are there. Jim, this is, we've gone on a bit of a tangent here, and, and feel free to, 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 to tell me to, to bugger off here, but I just wondered, did you vote for National in the last election? I shouldn't have to tell you, but the answer, of course, is yes. <laughs> I just, I just we wondered. We had a very, very good candidate. <laughs> we had a very good candidate here on the Carpety Coast. Did you party vote National as well? I did. OK, yeah. Well, thank you very much for your, um, for your time. Let's be quite clear, Jack. <laughs> Jack, just let's be quite clear. I don't see the Labor Party addressing some of these big issues I've just touched on mm. either. Mm. Have you ever heard of Grant Robinson talking about GDP being an inadequate measure? I think he, he talks talks about, about a well-being well -being budget, framework. but then did yeah. nothing. Yeah, he talked about a well-being budget, but did damn all about it. I mm. mean, we just got to do more than talk. We've got to have policies. Yeah. We've got to spend time articulating a new vision to the voters so they understand what you're talking about. Yeah. There's an enormous amount of work for whoever is elected the leader of the National Party and whoever is up the senior team with them or her. And uh, quite frankly, I'd love to see it. Mm. If anybody thinks you just elect the leader on Tuesday and then everything all comes right, uh, they dream. Mm. Hey, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed this conversation and, and your insights. We really appreciate it. That is the former leader okay, of the Jack. National Party and former Prime Minister, Jim Bolger. Coming up shortly, what more should New Zealand do to prepare for Omicron? But first, it was one of the most memorable lines in the House this year. On the first day of Christmas, National gave to me COVID. But I asked the Finance Minister if he regrets making that comment. Hokimai, welcome back to Q&A. I thought for a moment there that Jim Bolger was going to endorse Chloe Swarbrick as the next National Party leader. Moving on. This is an unusual moment for the New Zealand economy. Despite dire predictions last year, our unemployment rate is at an equal all-time low. But inflation is really starting to bite, hitting 4.9% last quarter. And in the face of the Delta outbreak, New Zealanders are feeling increasingly pessimistic about our economy in 2022. Now, just so you know, this interview was recorded on Friday. I began by asking the Finance Minister how concerned he is about New Zealand's rising inflation. Oh, well, obviously rising prices affect people in their everyday cost of living and it's something that in New Zealand and around the world we haven't experienced much in recent years. There have been very low levels of inflation, but this is a global issue. Uh, and I see the US for the month of October finished up at about 6% uh, for inflation there and I think the average across the OECD somewhere around 4.8% to the end of October. So uh, supply constraints that are coming out of the back of COVID, uh, high oil prices, 
uh, these are the things that are affecting us. New Zealand economy is robust, it's strong, it's resilient, uh, but we will, of course, be keeping an eye on inflation, as you'd expect us to do. Your consumer sentiment plays a big role in this space. The ANZ Consumer Survey shows consumers in New Zealand expect inflation to run above 6% for the next two years. And, of course, we know that inflation hits those on lowest incomes the hardest. So what specific steps will your government take to try and control inflation? I guess the first thing I'd say is that some of the projections are up around there. Some are a little bit lower and then coming down um, more quickly in the Reserve Bank was talking about that this week. Uh, we do have our system in place where the Reserve Bank's job, they've got two of them. One of them is to look out around employment outcomes, but the other is around price stability. And so they made their decision this week and they've given a, a track on which they think they'll be on to, to, to use the OCR to help manage price stability. From the government's point of view, we've already announced the increases to benefits. Um, we've consistently lifted the minimum wage and we will be looking out for those on the lowest incomes as we have done throughout our term. So it's a combination of both monetary and fiscal policy, but equally we are up against global trends, uh, but they are expected to wash through over the next year or so. What more can you do, though? Because 6%, if indeed we you know, that, that figure is realised, is extremely concerning, and we certainly haven't seen wage growth come anywhere near that sort of figure. Well, I think it's important when you talk about wage growth versus inflation. Over the last two or three years, it's been well ahead of inflation. Obviously, here looking into this period, that will be challenged. But I think it is important to see these things across a full uh, economic cycle. But we are here to make sure we look after those who are on the lowest incomes. And so we do have the benefit increases and we do have within our welfare system the ability for people to be able to get additional support as they need it. And then obviously we do have the issue around things like the minimum wage that mm. we can look out for. So we can intend to strongly continue to support those on low and middle incomes. Unemployment is low. There is work available for people to do. Uh, we are investing more and more in skills and training yeah. and in making sure people are ready to take on work. And so, you know, the economy is strong, but of course we have to look after the most vulnerable in our society and that's what we're doing. But are there specific steps you can take to expand the economic base as well as just lifting the minimum wage and increasing benefits? Well, our whole investment in infrastructure is designed to make sure that there's a long-term pipeline of work, that we're building more houses, that we're, we're doing more in public transport, that we are investing in those skills and training opportunities. And mm. early next year, we'll release uh, our social insurance uh, discussion document around how we provide further support for people who do lose their jobs. So, you know, the economy as a whole is strong, Jack. We've had really good economic growth. We've got low unemployment. We are in a high inflationary or higher inflationary environment, but those fundamentals will serve us really well. As you mentioned, baseline unemployment is at an equal historic low. So why are there 45,000 more New Zealanders today on the job seeker benefit than at the start of the pandemic? Well, obviously, um, you know, there is a difference between the way we measure unemployment and the way uh, benefits are given out. And the Household Labour Force Survey uh, covers you whatever amount of work that you have. There have been shifts in patterns of employment, including the amount of work people have. And so, therefore, some people have, um, have, have got uh, access to the benefit system as a result of that. But what I am pleased about is that since the outbreak began in August, we saw a small spike. And then those numbers on benefits have been coming off and particularly people have been moving off benefit and into work. We've got to keep alongside people, make sure we're supporting them to get the skills, to get the training, to take up the work opportunities that are there. 
the border reopening is critical from an economic perspective. As someone at that top table, can you offer any scientific reason why we cannot open the border to New Zealanders who are double vaccinated, negative tested, travelling from Australia on December 17th rather than January 17th? This is all about the accumulation of risk and the management of it and making sure we continue the careful and considered approach we've had. So in the middle of December, we will be removing the boundary around Auckland. We need to make sure that we manage those, the impacts of that, understand the impacts of that, and then move in January and then February for further opening at the international border. Um, all of these things accumulate on top of each other. If we did them all at once, we're not sure what the impact of that would be mm. on our health system, and we want to make sure we do it carefully. So this is based on public health advice, the approach that we're taking. And that public health advice is actually delivered for the economy as well. You know, New Zealand has done very, very well economically at the same time as having mm. one of the lowest mortality rates in the world. And I won't apologise for being careful or considered about our approach to COVID. You only have to look at what's happening in Europe or a new variant that's coming out of South Africa to see why our cautious approach is, I believe, the right one. But someone who is well-versed in data, who's used to looking at numbers, can you tell me why it is somehow a greater risk to have people who are COVID negative coming here from Australia when we have hundreds of positive positive COVID cases currently isolating at home. It makes no sense. Well, again, it's about that accumulation of risk. And, and the way that um, Dr Aisha Viral, who's you know, uh, an infectious disease expert in our cabinet, has put it to us, is that each person who comes in uh, um, from offshore who does end up having COVID, and we do know that people um, who, even if they have tested negative event offshore, mm -hmm. have ended up having COVID, that's a new case seeded into the community and a new chain of transmission. And so the way she's talked about it is that when you've got a, a bushfire, you mm. don't go around lighting new matches. It is all about the accumulation of risk. But we are carefully stepping through this. And in January and in mm. February, New Zealanders who are offshore will be able to come in and self-isolate. That will give them more people the opportunity to do that, but will still have the protection of the testing and isolation that they'll go through. Month makes a significant difference, though, doesn't it? And, and I mean, that, that, that argument might make sense if we just had a couple of dozen new cases in New Zealand. But we are seeing consistent triple figures for new cases every day. We haven't had a single uh, traveller arrive from Australia in the last three months who has tested positive to COVID-19. We're talking about negative tested people still isolating at home. Yeah, but, but Jack, most of those cases have been in Auckland. And we don't want to create a situation where we, where we are loose with what we do and we seed new mm. cases and new transmissions you're around opening the, the Auckland country. Border, and while Minister. we haven't had cases... Well, while we haven't had cases coming, while we haven't had cases coming out of Australia per se, we have had cases come across the border. And you know, New Zealanders are here; they're mm. already here. We're moving progressively to allow them to move around, and then we move to allow people from Australia and elsewhere. Mm. It's simply a way of managing it and continuing what I think has been a successful, careful and considered approach, allowing the economy to, to grow, but also protecting New Zealanders. It is a balance. So some people want us to go faster, mm. some people want us to go slower. I feel like we've got the balance about right. In opposition, you have been a harsh critic of the national government's use of urgency to pass legislation. As someone who has been in Parliament for a long time, why couldn't this week's critical traffic light legislation have been introduced earlier? 
Well, obviously we wanted to get it passed in time for the framework to be operating. The framework itself had been out for some considerable time and we'd been working through uh, with the Parliamentary Council Office making sure we drafted that law up well. I'd also say that the, the orders, the health orders that operationalise the Act, each of those has to go to the Regulations Review Committee. That's actually a committee where, mm. where Labor's only got three MPs on it and it will analyse each of the orders that will actually put the Act into operation. So sometimes when we're in the situation we're in, when we're in a pandemic and the way that it moves, we do have to take this kind of action. We don't take it lightly and actually when it comes to the implementation of the law, each step will be analysed. I mean, you could have made the policy decisions public. You could have made the legal drafting public. You could have held a tight select committee process. Instead, this government has passed what is probably the most important legislation of this year, with massive implications for New Zealanders across the board, under urgency. Well, I think the implications of the framework have been well understood by people because we have been talking about it for some time. We have to write the law, yes, to make sure that that framework is set in place. But at either end, both the policy mm. process to build up to it and the actual oper operationalisation of it, both of those have been subject to public scrutiny. In the case of the second, it will be subject to parliamentary scrutiny. I appreciate the fact that people have got a high level of interest in this, but we also have to make sure that we pass the law in time to get the framework going. Again, it's the example of whether we move too slow or too fast. There'll always be people who criticise it. We're just making sure we're focused on getting ourselves into a new framework, giving New Zealanders some more freedoms whilst continuing to be careful about the management of COVID. Coming up, in the seven months since the government announced changes to residential property investments, the average house price in New Zealand has increased $70,000. Hawkey Mai, welcome back. In the time since Grant Robertson became Finance Minister, the median house price in New Zealand has increased 68%. On Wednesday this week, the OCR went up 25 basis points. On Thursday, the Bank for International Settlements reported New Zealand officially has the hottest housing market in the world. Let's talk about housing. In March, you announced tax changes for residential property investments. When I asked you about the impact of those changes, this is what you said. We believe that the rises that we've seen over recent months are unsustainable and we believe this package will contribute to stopping those kinds of rises. So that's downward pressure on house prices. In the time since that interview, the median house price has increased $70,000 in New Zealand, more than $2,000 a week. Of course, you made those changes against the advice of the IRD and against the advice of officials in Treasury. With the benefit of hindsight, were those changes a mistake? Not at all. One of the things that's happened since then is that the proportion of first home buyers has increased, I think, to the highest level since at least the beginning of, of this century. Uh, I think around 26.5% of purchases are now by first home buyers. So that was one of the main intentions of that policy, was to alter the balance away from investors and speculators and towards first home buyers. There have been a lot of other things happening in the economy since March, including the significant um, impact of the lockdown and the restrictions 
wins that we've had. But actually, it has achieved one of its goals. And we do have to recognise that there's a long way to go. A, a housing crisis decades in the making is not going to get solved quickly. But I still believe that these changes were the right thing to do. There is evidence that the decision to exclude new builds from those deductibility changes is contributing to upward pressure and rapid growth in the cost of new builds. Will you consider removing those exclusions? No, I don't think that would be in good faith. I mean, we, we've made that decision very clear and we do want to see more houses built. You know, the government has got a responsibility to be part of ensuring we increase housing supply. Housing demand and the management of housing demand is only one part of the equation. And so building supply issues are most definitely there. They're, they're driven globally um, as well as by the construction activity that's taking place in New Zealand. Uh, but we believe that, that incentivising new builds will pay off for New Zealand in the medium and the long term. Indexed to the median household income, what is an affordable house in New Zealand? Look, it is tough, and those measures around the world, um, we are well in excess of where people have put those, and that's the reason why we regard where we are as unsustainable. So it's going to take some time to see those come down, but with the investments that we're making in building more houses and in making sure we've got more products on offer for people to support them in and those demand management measures, we will see it come down. But I'm not denying it's unsustainable at the moment, uh, and it's going to be a big job for New Zealand to undo the decades that have built up to this point. Sorry, that didn't answer the question. Indexed to the median household income in New Zealand, what do you consider is an affordable house? And as I said, I'm not going to put a particular number on it. Affordability is often an individualised thing. There are global measures around that which we are well in excess of, and I want to see us come down. But I'm not going to put that specific measure on it because both it's a long-term project and it's also a very individualised equation. This is your government's 56-page housing policy statement. In this, you mention affordability 70 times, and not once do you say what affordability actually is, not once do you define it? As a finance minister whose government was elected on a promise to tackle this crisis, why won't you tell us what is an affordable house? And on that, Jack, we're agreeing. What I'm saying is, by putting a specific number and measure on it, it denies the fact that the experiences of different people are, are very, very varied. What That's I am agreeing with you on is that we have to... We have to act, and that's why we are acting, by building more houses. We have built more houses than any government in New Zealand since the 1970s. We've taken action around banning foreign buyers, around rebalancing the way that interest deductibility works. We are taking action to get on top of the housing crisis. But you're still but only talking vagaries when it comes to affordability. Because affordability is something that varies greatly across different parts of the market. That's why we use an index as a measure. Who are buying into the market. Sure, and I'm telling you that I understand those measures get used globally. We're well north of those and we want to bring it down. Under different National Party leadership, what is the risk that you will lose bipartisan support for those changes to urban density laws? Well, obviously, that will be up to the National Party. We entered into the agreement with them in good faith. Uh, and I want to congratulate um, you know, Judith Collins and Nicola Willis for being part of those discussions because it is important for local government that they have some certainty. Our view, until uh, we are advised otherwise, is that we continue to have cross-party support for those changes. Do you see that as being a risk, given the state of the National Party at the moment? 
Well, I, it'd be far better for me to be able to make a judgment on the state of the National Party at the moment, so let's just wait and see. Property underscores wealth divisions in New Zealand. Statistics New Zealand says the richest 10% of Kiwis now have almost 60% of the wealth in this country. Max Rashbrook says the figure is closer to 70%. Are you comfortable with that? Oh, look, one of the main goals of this government is to reduce inequality, and we've been taking strong steps to do that when it comes to the way in which we've been supporting low-income New Zealanders. But obviously in the area of asset inequality, we do have some way to go. That's why we've done all of the things that we've just been discussing in this interview, and it will take some time to address, but we are addressing it. So what would be an appropriate ratio then? How much wealth do you think the top richest 10% of New Zealanders should control in this country? You're not going to be surprised, Jack, that I'm also not going to put a number on that because we clearly want to see a fairer distribution of wealth in New Zealand. We, I personally haven't looked deeply into that particular statistic, but what I do know is that we've been working hard to reduce inequality and we are seeing incomes lift among the lowest income earners in New Zealand. We also want to be addressing asset inequality as well. Minister, this is our last interview for 2021. I know you'll miss us over the summer break. I know it has been a stressful year. And I know that politicians don't usually admit being wrong. But you said in the House uh, a few weeks ago that National would give New Zealanders COVID for Christmas. And I just wondered, given our situation, is there any part of you that regrets that? You know what, Jack? Actually, there is. I think that was, a, that was a flippant comment. What I was responding to was a proposal that would have seen New Zealand's international border open up, I think, when we were about 70% vaccinated. I thought that was wrong then, and I think that's wrong today. But actually, COVID's a serious issue for a lot of New Zealanders. We already had COVID in New Zealand when I made that comment. And so, yeah, on reflection, I think that wasn't a good thing to say. I still disagree with the policy I was responding to, but I definitely could have used better language than that. That's Finance Minister Grant Robertson. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can email us Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Coming up, we can't say we weren't warned. A new virus mutation sparks global concern and new travel restrictions. What more should New Zealand do to prepare? Kia ora We welcome back. One of the country's most remote settlements is also one of New Zealand's least vaccinated. Karamea is 100 kilometres north of Westport and around 30% of its residents remain unvaccinated. That means the traffic light restrictions will have significant impacts on daily life in Karamea. Here's Fina Owen. I came for more freedom and... Now we have this, it's unbelievable, it's unbelievable. Karamea, 650 people living between the rainforest and the beach. So there's just a, a total range of people and because we're a small community, 100 kilometres up a dead end road, you get to know a lot of those people. The Karamea district has always attracted alternative communities, those wanting to build their own utopia. As far back as the 1880s, a group of closed brethren set up in this valley and called it the Promised Land. Peace in the valley, in the valley for me. 
Mike and Gisela, who came here 23 years ago from Germany to live off the grid, insist that peace has been well and truly shattered. For the last 12 years, Gisela, who's not vaccinated, has worked here at the last resort. So what's going to happen for you next week? Well, I can't work. And from Friday, the unvaccinated can't enter the few cafes and bars where the community socialises. If that is our only way to live, then I guess that's what we have to do. Could you explain what do you mean, what you have to do? You well, to... just like meet with, meet with some other people for a, for a coffee somewhere or some, in someone's garden or, or wherever so we can have a little bit of social life. Because you can't come here, of course. I can't come here, no. I don't want to be policing my community. Maggie Seaman is the owner-manager of The Last Resort. The Last Resort is an icon in Karamea, and it's a community hub. Um, and the people that work here also come here and socialise in the evenings, or they come with their children to the cafe. The children come here and play in the gardens. The last resort is the town's biggest employer. Around a third of the staff will lose their jobs next week because they're unvaccinated. Lee has only a few more shifts before finishing up. Once things start shutting down, then um, you know people have to stay at home. There's not much life going on. And... She's mum of preschoolers, and the only play centre in 100 kilometres is here in Karamea. It's temporarily closed because many of the parents supervising the children are not vaccinated. Around town, the new COVID regulations are testing friendships. The majority always rule. The majority are vaccinated, so bit by bit, they will become a minority. Uh, how hard that road's going to be in the meantime for them, well, time will tell. Stephanie, a local unvaccinated mum, is convinced that road will be hard. The family are moving further out of town into the bush. We want to um, first and foremost feel safe, um, and the second is, is that What do you we... mean safe, Stephanie? Um, just with the uncertainty, with what's going on, um, with with the world in general. The mandate has meant Stephanie had to leave her job at the school and her part-time waitress job. I do literacy at the school. I'm like the main literacy person. And there are students right there now that have no literacy program because I've left. And so did you feel the weight of that? I mean, I did. a I lot felt of people watching this would say, look, why don't you just save yourself the stress and go and get vaccinated? And, and also the, the uh, disappointment among the children, mm. you know? Well, I, I felt and still feel like I have abandoned them. Um, I, uh, every day I kind of grapple with that. She tells us she doesn't want the jab because of a medical condition and the stress has taken its toll. We could go to this dark place and feel like we're being controlled and like we're very restricted in our movements or we can use our very creative minds to come up with ways to see a future within this framework. The unvaccinated people are completely shut out from society. We have to create a new 
way of living. Whether it's bringing back more of the bartering or um, having markets every day, having delivery services, um, uh, you know, looking after each other's children um, and, and doing homeschooling. In the bush behind Karamea, we meet a local who has chosen not to be vaccinated or named and is preparing for a different society. In a sense, um, this uh, separatism are setting up is going to create two economies. Two economies, you think about it. So now he's working toward more self-sufficiency. So that if there are refugees, I can feed them. Refugees, people that are being persecuted because they've made the choice to say no. What life will be like for residents of Karamea who've decided not to be vaccinated will become clearer over the next few weeks. I can imagine, yeah, we just have to stick to ourselves and, you know, uh, mind our own business, basically, and socialise together, yes, if they let us. Finn Owen in Karamea. After the break, just how concerned should we all be about Omicron? Healthy experts around the world are concerned about a new coronavirus variant, Omicron, that experts fear can evade vaccines and immunity. Late last night, COVID Minister Chris Hipkins announced that travel from nine southern African countries is now being designated very high risk. Australia has closed its borders to those same countries after the WHO officially labelled Omicron a variant of concern. Professor Mary Louise McClaws from the University of New South Wales is with us this morning. Kia ora, thank you for being with us. In your view, just how concerning is Omicron? Good morning, thank you for having me. Uh, it's potentially very concerning uh, because of the large number of mutations that appear to have happened all at once. That's the real concern, um, that this uh, virus has uh, potentially learned how to be faster in transmission, evade the immune system, and bind and fuse with the cells um, much more easily and faster. So it's a bit of a watch this space because I believe it's been moved into that uh, category a variant of concern because of this large number of mutations. But we're yet to find out whether any of those three things, transmission, evasion, and you know the binding, which then causes greater transmission, uh, actually will occur. So it's likely because of these mutations that some of those things might occur. What would be the impact if that indeed is the case? Well, what the impact could be, Jack, is that we might be in a situation like with Delta. So when um, beta was made a variant of concern, we were all holding our breath. But beta never occur uh, became highly uh, transmissible like Delta. And Delta became highly transmissible in just a matter of months in the UK, the US, and of course, you know, in Australia, we have over 170,000 cases. And of course, you know, you've got over 7,000 cases. So this could turn into a Delta. It's a bit too soon to say that just how, yet. How, but it's very important. Sorry, how? I was going to say it's very important, important to be uh, precautionary. Yeah. At what point will we know just how dangerous this variant potentially is? 
WHO has asked countries, and particularly South Africa, to start doing some epidemiology. I mean, the um, South Africans have had a couple of spikes. Um, most of those spikes have been through de for Delta. They don't always do uh, genomic um, sequencing of every sample. Mm. And so now that they'll be looking at, particularly as new cases come, come up, whether or not they are um, Omicron or not. Okay, I want to talk best and worst case scenarios if we can. So the head of the South African Medical Association says there has been a significant spike in coronavirus cases, but so far no correlating spike in hospitalizations since the discovery of Omicron. So best case scenario, is there a chance that this is potentially more infectious, but actually the effects of this variant are less severe? Well, Jack, yes. And, the, and, and best case scenario is it turns out to be a fizzer like beta. That's best case scenario. Or we often see a delay in hospitalization because Delta had an, a large uh, hospitalization because it had large numbers. And so at the moment, uh, Omicron doesn't have large numbers. So there could be this delay. Right, what, what is the worst case scenario? Worst case scenario is that it's not only more transmissible, that it has um, a causing greater infection and more severe infection, and it evades our vaccine uh, antibodies. And Fauci from America has suggested that they uh, have a look at uh, this particular virus and they challenge it with some neutralizing antibodies to see just whether it does evade, because this particular strain has uh, some of these mutations that have um, found, been found in other strains, particularly Delta, mm. that has caused uh, you know things like AstraZeneca and Pfizer to have a lowered um, efficacy against symptomatic disease. Omicron has been discovered in the UK. Of course, the UK has put a temporary travel ban on some of those Southern African countries. Australia has followed suit. Is the world reacting fast enough? Look, I think the world is reacting very fast, but uh, Jack, I think it should act just a little faster. I'll just remind you that uh, last year in uh, March, Australia closed its border to China when China had uh, the Wuhan strain, but it failed to close the border to all other countries initially to try to get the behind the systems going. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden we had, um, you know, Im imports through uh, travelers from the UK, the USA and Europe. So I would actually be a little more highly precautious and uh, require every single person traveling to have uh, a test as soon as they arrive and be in isolation or quarantine everybody for at least um, five days because that's about the incubation period and be tested on that fourth and fifth day because remember in hong kong one of the travelers didn't test positive mm. until the fourth day and then he may have given it to somebody across the corridor and that person didn't of course test positive until the eighth day and he may have acquired it on the fourth day so we really do need to realize that this this uh, mutation may uh cause people to test positive later mm. we don't know yet and so 
being highly precautious and making everybody go to quarantine just until the epidemiology and the virology uh, is known. And finally, Mary Louise, is this just going to keep on happening? It is going to keep on happening until uh, the low-income countries get vaccinated and until your country and everybody else's country gets vaccinated. Now, Africa is below the 40% um, mm. coverage that WHO wants of all countries by the end of the year. And, uh, and so it will happen constantly in low-income countries. So I'd ask all New Zealanders, please rush to get vaccinated because if you do get infection, you may not get very sick. You'll be protected from death and severe illness. So we need vaccination. Thank you so much for your time. We always appreciate your expertise and insights. Professor Mary Louise McClaws. Kumutu, that is Q&A for this week. Thank you so much for watching. Just so you know, next week is our very last programme of 2021, so be sure to tune in. Thanks for your company and thanks to my Q&A colleagues. Hey, Tera Wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.